Welcome and thanks for listening to the sermon podcast from First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu. With this sermon, we welcome the season of Lent. Today, we'll learn some of the basics of the Lenten season. Now, some of us fast from a food or activity during Lent. Some might fast from cynical, biting speech. The Bible says there is power in our words. For this sermon from Ash Wednesday, here's First Pres Assistant Pastor Steve Page and the sermon, The Worlds We Create. Aloha, everyone. My name is Steve Page, one of the pastors here on staff at First Pres, and I'm really glad you're able to join us tonight for this important service as we begin the Lenten season. Now, as I do every year, I want to take a moment to briefly explain why we do what we do on Ash Wednesday and what Lent is all about. First of all, the word Lent is simply a Germanic word for spring, you know, like spring, summer, fall, spring. And Ash Wednesday marks the beginning of a six-week journey through Lent. You see, in the season of Lent, we go on a journey with God and with each other, a journey that begins with who we are, with all our frailties and our shortcomings, but continues with anticipation for what God may renew or do in and through us during this season. Moreover, it's a journey that culminates at a bloody cross and in an empty tomb and with a reiteration of that world-altering statement, He is risen. Now, over the centuries, the church has historically emphasized the spiritual disciplines of prayer or fasting, reflection, and repentance during Lent, though others can certainly be incorporated as well. As we fast and pray, etc., we're especially reflecting on where we may have veered off course from Jesus, that is, veered off from the heart and the passions and the values and the goals of God for our lives. This is why the issue of repentance is often emphasized in this period. Now, contrary to popular belief, repentance doesn't mean hating on yourself or participating in some sort of self-flagellation. Rather, it means to rethink, realign, and rebuild everything in our lives on the basis of Jesus. And this is why there's a lot of self-examination that is encouraged during Lent. To put it simply, Lent is a time where we reflect on or why we still need the cross. We reflect on why we still need the resurrection of the Lord for our lives. Now, the use of ashes really comes out of a Jewish ritual of using ashes as a symbol of sorrow and repentance. It was used as an outward sign that showed one's inner disposition. Now, such a gesture made, one, made one's change of heart visible to the community, and it demonstrated the sincerity of one's desire to become more of what God wanted. Now, even though this year we cannot receive the ashes because of COVID, know that we will still have the Lord's Supper together live via Zoom right after this service. So make sure you have your bread and juice or bread and wine ready. Now keep in mind as we partake in the Lord's Supper, also called communion or the Eucharist, these terms are interchangeable, that we're incorporating physical elements to express symbolically our continual need for Jesus, for his death and his resurrection. Now because we are not mere thought machines, but because we're tactile and psychological and emotional beings, we need more than right thoughts to experience and to internalize God's truth for our lives. So the wine and the bread are physical elements that give expression and draw us further into the spiritual reality of what Christ did for us. Now, the mood and the ambiance of a service like this is not so much somber as it is both sober and hopeful. 
And it's hopeful in the sense that we're looking forward. We're looking forward to Resurrection Sunday and the change that that brings. But at the same time, we are very sober-minded about why Jesus had to go to the cross. Make no mistake, he put himself there because of our sins. Now look, that's not to infuse shame or anything like that, but it, it's to inspire gratefulness and thanksgiving in our hearts, which is what the word Eucharist means. It means, literally in Greek, thanksgiving. One last thing before we go to worship. As I alluded to a moment ago, Lent is often a time where Christians the world over practice some sort of spiritual discipline that they may not normally practice throughout the year, like fasting or taking extra time in silence, solitude, or prayer. Just so we understand what spiritual disciplines are, let me give you my own working definition. See, for me, spiritual disciplines are those spiritual exercises that we engage in to give God the space, the time, and the attentiveness to make us more like Jesus and to create a greater intimacy with Him. They are the means by which we participate with God in order to be changed by God, because only God can change us. Now, notice the goals in my definition, to make us more like Jesus and to create a greater intimacy with Him. Now, I need to emphasize this because the goal of a spiritual discipline is not simply to do the discipline. Let me put it this way. The goal of fasting is not simply to go without food, but it's to, it's to fast in order to give God time and space and attentiveness in our lives to be changed by Him. The goal of solitude is not simply to go without being with people, but to give God space in our lives, time in our day, and attentiveness with our hearts and minds to be changed by Him and to draw us closer to Him. And we practice these disciplines because as the saying goes, practice makes permanent. And the things that we gain through our spiritual disciplines, we want to make permanent in our lives. Make sense? So, as we go along tonight, be open to what God may be calling you to try in terms of a spiritual discipline this Lenten season. But for now, please join me in prayer as we prepare our hearts for worship. Just close your eyes and bow your head if you're able. Just take a deep breath. Lord, as we enter this Lenten season, we ask that you would fill our hearts and our minds with your Holy Spirit. Guide us every step of the way, Lord. And I do pray for each one of us that we would be open to you in a new and unique way in order to become more like you and to become more intimate with you. In this hour, Lord, we pray that you would free our hearts and our minds to worship you with all our heart because, Lord, you are our great Savior, our great God, our great King. And we are here today simply because of your amazing and powerful grace on our lives. So tonight and every day through Lent, Lord, to you be all the glory. In your wonderful and gracious name we pray, amen. Amen. Now, as you know, during Lent, one of the things many Christians do is fast from something like coffee or chocolate or Netflix or Facebook or visiting New Jersey or whatever. And out of curiosity, I looked up online some of the more unique things that people have fasted from over the years. And let me tell you, some of these things really surprised me. For example, some people actually fast from a comfortable bed for Lent. 
Others fasted from looking in mirrors for six weeks. Now that's a challenge, but that's nothing. Some women fasted from makeup for 40 days. Now that's pretty bold, but my favorite was this, fasting from hot showers. Now, you may not think that's a big deal, but trust me, I lived for some years in countries where I had no hot water. And with every freezing shower, you feel like you're serving penance for two people, as well as shaving years off of purgatory. Okay, I'm totally kidding about purgatory. Please don't email me about purgatory, okay? I'm just kidding. But kidding aside, last year I did try something I never did before in terms of fasting. And I think it helped me to grow in my walk with God more than any other thing I had done before during Lent. You see, I fasted from complaining. Now why would I do that? Well, for several reasons. For one, over the years, I've noticed that somewhere along the line, I acquired a black belt in complaining. You know, get me going on politics or government or the American church and I can fill an acre lot with complaining. In fact, if complaining were manure, I could fertilize a farm. See what I'm saying? Moreover, a big reason why I fasted from complaining was because so much of my life as a pastor, as a father, as a husband, revolves around words. I mean, think about it. As a pastor, just as a pastor, so much of my job is about words. You know, I may spend only about a half hour preaching, but I spend many hours writing words and crafting these sermons. I spend many hours reading words from books or articles or blogs and the like. And I spend a good chunk of hours listening to words from podcasts or from people that I counsel or guide or disciple, listening to words of pain and confusion, as well as deep desires and shattered dreams. So in a life that revolves so much around words, I had to really do something about the words coming out of my mouth because I want my life to produce words that produce life, not cynicism and scorn. You know, recently, uh, as I was yet again reflecting about the particular words that I express in and through a day, I came across these brief words from a blog by Pastor Carrie Newhoff. He simply wrote this, words create worlds. Now, that may not grab your soul at the moment, but I want us to really think about how our words create worlds. You see, world creation is not only the domain of preachers. The words and guidance and encouragement of a teacher or a coach or friends and most definitely a parent can shape the world of a child for years, if not a lifetime. And if enough of those words, those life-shaping words are negative and corrosive in nature, well, we can crush a soul and raise a cynic. Now, we see the notion of words create worlds writ large in our contemporary culture, don't we? Are we not all learning that the words of pundits and politicians and podcasters and yes, even pastors can throw a whole nation in turmoil and fill it with distrust and cynicism and deep, deep division? For better or for worse, you can be sure your words shape things that come into being. Now, the seriousness and the gravity of how words create worlds is no new insight. The scriptures have written about it for thousands of years. Proverbs 18 verse 21 says this, the tongue has the power of life and death and those who love it will eat its fruit. In other words, those who love talking will bear the fruit of more life or more death in our communities, our families, and in our souls. And this is what I wanna zero in on. 
How can we, over this Lenten season, become a people who are better at speaking words of life by the time Lent ends than when it first began? So that the world we create with our words reflects more of the kingdom of God. To better understand why we need to be considering this issue as Christians, let me share what Jesus had to say about words. And warning, it's quite jarring. In Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 34, he says this, For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person brings good things out of them, the, the good that is stored in them. And the evil person brings evil things out of the evil stored up in them. I tell you, on the day of judgment, you will have to give an account for every careless word you utter. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Now, let me tell you something. As a husband, as a parent, and especially as a preacher, those are very sobering statements. And these words got me thinking. What makes it so easy to be careless, as Jesus says, with our words? Well, there's a lot of reasons. I'm just going to touch on a few. First of all, this. As Jesus points out in verse 34, the journey towards speaking words of life into our world, into our relationships, into our workplaces, and into our culture begins with us having the right heart. Now, to understand what Jesus is getting at, we have to be pretty clear on what he meant by heart. You see, heart in Scripture is not the realm of feelings like we may use it today in our English language. In fact, very often, it's more akin to what we would call mind today. See, heart was a faculty with which we thought about things, evaluated things, understood things, decided on how to respond to life and to people and to issues. It is that deep aspect of us which processes and forges our thoughts, our words, and our behaviors toward the world. It was also the realm of our character, our value system, our mindset, etc. Now, I emphasize this because I want us to consider this very seriously. What happens when this aspect of our lives is forged by something other than the purposes and values and character of God? when his values and character do not penetrate and permeate our mindset, our value system, or the way we choose to respond or speak to people, like our coworkers, our kids, our spouses, and even our enemies. When it doesn't permeate uh, the way we talk about or frame or deal with issues like human rights or the way we do business or the way we respond to hatred and opposition. In other words, when Jesus' purposes and values and character are not shaping us, what world are we shaping into being with our families, with our friends, and with our culture? In the scriptures, when we resist God's purposes and values shaping us, it's called having a hard heart. Now, to be fair, we may not be hard-hearted, so to speak, about everything that Jesus teaches, but we might have what I call a selective hardness of heart. That is, being hard-hearted towards teachings that we simply don't want to entertain, like loving your enemy, or blessing those who hate us, or really facing and dealing with our anger, or our contempt towards other people, not dealing with seeking forgiveness or reconciliation with those that we may have offended. You know, if I'm honest, sometimes some of the words from Jesus are like, you know, leather seats when you buy a new car. Great to have, but not really necessary. Great to have, but they're bonus to my faith, not basic to it. So in the end, our thoughts, our interpretive grid, our mindset, our decision-making, 
our world creation in our homes, workplaces, and culture ends up to be not what God intended. Bottom line, if we don't go uh, through a heart change, then our word change and thus our world change will be bent in a wrong direction. Now I know most of us think we're pretty positive people, so we probably think that we speak a lot more life than death in our day. But research shows something else. It shows us that about 75% of what comes out of our mouths in a day is negative, 75%. For example, like this. Can you believe how long it takes just to get a lousy vaccine? Oh, look at this guy going 10 miles under the speed limit. You know, I'm sick of all this political nonsense. Why does Steve have to talk so loudly? Et cetera, et cetera, ad nauseum. You get the idea. Negative comments all over the place about everything. Perhaps because we have a real habit of negative speak that comes from our hearts, and because negative speak creates a negative world, God directs us in Scripture to do this. Proverbs 4, verse 23 says this, Guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. The word guard here in Hebrew means to diligently exercise great care for something. So consider this. How can you diligently guard your heart during Lent? What kind of negative things that may move you away from God's heart for people, God's heart for issues, will you guard against? For example, years ago, I used to listen to talk radio on the way home from work. Well, the diatribes by the show hosts were so filled with vitriol and denigration towards people with different socio-political views that by the time I got home, I was so riled up and fuming with words of death in my heart. And if I'm totally honest with you, I grew more outraged at certain people and ideas, and I was becoming more cynical about our culture. And as I listened to such words again and again and again, they started to eclipse the deeper and the greater call of God on my life. I mean, think about it. As a Christian, am I ever called to cynicism? Am I ever called to denigrate or feel contempt toward other people whom God loves? Am I ever called to widen the divide between political parties? In fact, as a Christian, am I not called to love my enemies, to bless those who hate me, to heal divisions in my culture and create more shalom? So eventually, I finally realized, wait, this stuff is creating such a hostile heart in me. Why in the world would I let my heart be forged by and filled with such stuff? God wants me to guard my heart against outrage, not be filled with it. So I stopped listening completely, and I've never looked back. You know, as the years have gone by, I've been trying to apply that same discipline to other things beyond talk radio, like podcasts, certain podcasts, or posts on social media, or even some cable news networks. I mean, think about it. Why in the world would I allow such things to draw me into greater outrage towards people whom God loves and died for? As you've heard me quote in other, other sermons, this pastor, it's a great quote. If you echo the culture, you get more of the culture, not more of the kingdom. You hear that? If you echo the culture, you get more of the culture, not more of the kingdom. Now look, I'm not saying guarding your heart means to bury your head in the sand. I'm not saying that at all. But it is being discerning as to what we will let fill and forge our hearts. 
And this is where we need to keep in mind the words of James when he wrote in his letter, James chapter 3, starting in verse 9, With our tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. And this is ex what was exactly happening in my heart towards people created in the image of God. Now, by the way, please don't take this as if I'm saying Christians should never listen to talk radio or look at blogs or posts or whatever. I'm simply saying I'm giving my own personal experience with this whole medium. Now, here's another challenge. Another reason why this ancient wisdom about guarding your heart is paramount is because of biology. Simply put, your brain is built for negativity. What do I mean by that? Well, scientists believe that our brains are hardwired to more readily pick out and latch on to negative things in the world. They believe it's a protective mechanism to ensure survival in a long life. And it makes sense when you think about it because for thousands of years when one walked from here to over there, they didn't simply walk casually looking at all the nice flowers along the path. Our brains honed in on that which could eat us for lunch, like the saber-toothed tiger in the bush or that wiggling python on the ground. So it has, been long to, it has long been our, an advantage to have a brain hardwired to notice and latch onto the negative things we see, we hear, and we feel. Now here's the thing. That may be great for keeping us from the jaws of a lion, but it plays havoc on relationships and on how to live well with each other in community. Let me explain. When our heart, our mindset, our outlook, our interpretation of events and people are bent in a negative or critical or, or cynical direction, our hearts become blind. Not just foggy, but blind. Here's what I mean. Psychologists and researchers John and Julie Gottman did some longitudinal studies on couples and criticism. And here's what they found. People who are often focused on criticizing, in other words, people whose heart was bent towards criticism, missed a whopping 50% of the positive things their partner was doing. The negativity almost created kind of a, a tunnel vision that only sees the bad. And here's the kicker. What's really crazy is that when, when couples are critically minded, they see negativity even when it's not there. This is why with our spouses, with our kids, our friends, our coworkers, we must be very intentional about curbing our harsh talk, our words of death to each other, because our harshness, our disrespectful language will block out a lot of good things that you may be actually doing. But all those good things sit on a pile of so many other negative things so people don't notice it. Bottom line, your brain will scour the landscape to notice negative stuff, even if what's in front of you is more positive than negative. And this is a big reason why we need to guard our hearts. Second thing about our biology I want to mention is this. We love to be right. Now, this is not just an ego thing. It's a brain thing. See, we have a peaceful sense of homeostasis when we go about our lives thinking we're doing right. We like this state of mind so much that being told uh, that we're wrong literally feels like a threat to our well-being. 
You see, scientists have shown how our brains react to attacks on our beliefs, just our beliefs, the same way it reacts to threats to our physical well-being. Again, as I said before, our natural human tendency is to avoid threats. So, what do we do in the face of feeling such threats? Well, one of the big things we do is to surround ourselves with people who think just like us. This sort of subconscious choosing is in part what psychologists call confirmation bias in the formation of echo chambers. First, let me talk about confirmation bias. Confirmation bias happens when we scan our world for things that confirm our existing beliefs or ideas or plans or actions, and they filter out and even resist things that don't confirm them. It's kind of like that classic situation, you know, when you're praying about buying a new Honda Civic. You really want it, and so you're praying to God if you should buy it, and then suddenly, as you're driving around, you notice the island is full of Civics. So this must be a confirmation from God that I must buy a Honda Civic. But the problem with this approach is twofold. One is this, the same amount of Civics have always been there. It's not like suddenly God added more of them to the planet just to guide you. It's just that now you see things you never saw because your mind is prompted to see them so that it can confirm the thing you want in life. See, this way then there's no cognitive dissonance between what you think God wants and what you're about to do. Moreover, there are all kinds of cars out there that are not Honda Civics, but you never notice how we never stop to think that God is showing us all those other cars so he can redirect our steps? We don't do that, do we? All right, so that's a bit humorous, but this kind of thing can have some not so funny outcomes. You see, the desire for confirmation bias sometimes leads us to create echo chambers. That is, being around and talking and listening to folks who think and believe and worship and act or even vote just like us. And when this happens, it starts to create a, a kind of compound interest in our beliefs and perspective on things which then can create a very rigid and calcified viewpoint, a calcified heart towards people and issues that differ from the ones we favor. Now, I know most of us feel like, hey, we're open-minded people. We wouldn't fall into that trap. And to a great extent, we can be. But one study points out that even the most well-intentioned of us can still move towards a more uncompromising and extreme viewpoint simply by being around others just like ourselves. In 2016, a study from the University of Colorado noted that although people often perceive their own attitudes as unbiased and pretty stable, meaning we don't, I don't change my mind very much over time, the, the evidence shows that people's attitudes became more extreme after they speak with like-minded others. For example, if like-minded Second Amendment advocates gather together, they grow more opposed to gun control. If like-minded environmental activists get together, they grow more committed to fighting climate change. And this was a turnout only after 15 minutes of discussions with like-minded people. So in plain English, it just feels so good to stick to our guns, even though we might be wrong. Now one last thing about science and confirmation bias that's really crucial for us Christians to understand. Even though the scientists could see how the people's attitudes in these groups became more polarized, more extreme by the time the group ended, in other words, they could see how liberals became more liberal and conservatives became more conservative, even though they saw that, 
the people in the groups could not see that their own attitudes had become more extreme. In fact, when the people in the groups were interviewed post-group, they stated that their post-group views were exactly the same as they were when they were pre-group. If at all, maybe it changed just a little. In other words, even though they moved into a more extreme position, they didn't realize the shift they made. And this is why we Christians really need each other and to speak the truth in love to each other. Because we are simply biologically susceptible to moving in an unhealthy direction. Now look, I, I bring all this up to say this. Even the best Christians are susceptible to moving in a direction that creates more division and discord, not unity and peace. And that's not just unfortunate. It's tragic. And it's tragic because we are called to be peacemakers, not division makers. It's tragic because we have faith in a God who loves people on both sides of an issue. Folks, bottom line, things like echo chambers and confirmation bias will never make us wise, only comfortable. And they are more likely to create discord rather than peace. And this should make us pause as Christians because, because as the scriptures make clear, time and again, we are called to be a people of godly wisdom and peacemaking. You know, in the same chapter where James speaks about how we misuse our speech to praise God and curse humans, he goes on to say this about being wise, starting in verse 13 and then verse 17. Who is wise and understanding among you? Show by your good life that your works are done with harshness born of wisdom. No, he doesn't say harshness. He says, show that your works are done with gentleness born of wisdom. Then in verse 17, he goes on to say, wisdom from above, from God, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruit, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. Now get this, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. And this is why I bring all this up about speaking words of life, because words create worlds. And we are called as a Christian people to create a world of peace. And now look, we're not simply called to admire peace or even highly value peace, but to make peace peace in our world. And keep in mind, you know, the biblical sense of peace or shalom is not just simply ceasing from hostility, but it's the creation of wholeness and well-being. It's about the integration and reunification of all of life, God and humanity, us versus them, minorities and majorities, the powerful and the powerless, the well-off and the needy. In other words, it is the coming together of everything that has been fragmented away from God's intentions for wholeness and well-being. So as we finish this segment of our service, let me ask you this. Is there someone with whom you need to make peace this Lenten season? Be it a friend or a colleague at work or a family member or maybe even with God himself. Is there some work to be done in terms of your heart, your mindset, your words about those who have different political views than you? Can you spend some time this Lent really reflecting on the worlds you are creating with your words, your words with your family, your friends, 
your coworkers, your world. Your words in those social media posts, and especially those words in those emails that you want to forward. Do the words that we open our hearts to and listen to, be it online or on the radio or podcast or TV, do they, do they move us in the direction of peacemaking or division making? Do they create more peace in our heart or more discord and thus more outrage in our words? Be praying about what you can fast from and feast on during Lent so that by Easter, you're a little more of a peacemaker through your words and actions than the way you started. Amen? Amen. Let me just say a very brief blessing. May the wisdom of your words be a part of God's effort to create a world that brings healing and wholeness and peace to your family, to your friends, to your community, and to our nation. To God be all the glory. Amen. We have an opportunity to take inventory of how we talk to people. Do our words uplift others? Do our words reflect the heart of God? If you'd like to hear this sermon again, you can listen to and download this and other sermons from the First Pres website, fpchawaii.org. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Normally, we gather on Sundays at our Ko'olau campus or at The Vine in Kaka'ako. But for now, you can find the entire church service streamed online on the church websites, fpchawaii.org and thevinehawaii.org. For our virtual church service, click the online church box at our regular church service times, Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30 and 11.11 for First Prez, and Sunday afternoon at 4 p.m. for The Vine. Be sure to check your email for links to sermons, church news and updates, and daily devotionals. If you have any questions or needs, you can always reach the church through the website or call 808-532-1111. For Pastor Dan Chun and the entire staff at First Prez, I'm Michael Shishido. Until next time, God bless you, stay safe, and thank you for listening. This sermon podcast is copyright 2021 and produced by the media ministry of First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu.